Hi, this is Caden, and this is my daddy's podcast called Lasting Learning. Welcome to Lasting Learning, the podcast that was started because I thought I had things to say. The podcast that continues to grow because we've learned that your stories matter more. Welcome to Lasting Learning, where we explore great people doing extraordinary things, sharing with us the lasting lessons they've learned along the way. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. Those of you that have listened before, you know what this podcast is about. It's about learning the lessons that will transcend your life, that will change your life, that will inspire your life. I try to bring guests on that are going to teach us something, who will share something with us, who have a compelling story. Oftentimes, it's a story of overcoming. Oftentimes, it's a story of expertise. Oftentimes, it's a person that just fills us with hope and ambition, and today is no exception. Today, we have a guest on who encapsulates all of that. She's a woman who has overcome some amazing tragedies, some amazing heartache, some amazing loss, both personally, professionally, medically, you name it. But she's here today to tell us how she did it, how she overcame it, and how she's thriving in the world today. Today, we've got Cindy Gersh joining us, and she is just going to fill you with wisdom and knowledge to keep you moving. Cindy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dave. Well, I love that introduction. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best. You like pumped me up, so I'm like, oh, I hope I can sell. Like, no, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Let me. I'll, I'll rewind because you're supposed to undersell and over deliver. All right, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, today we've got Cindy on. Whatever, <laughs> Cindy, just tell us who you are, where you're right, from, right. whatever. Ready. No, Cindy, I, I am super grateful to have you on today to to fill us with knowledge and to share a little bit about your story. Mm-hmm. So to set the stage for people, um, your story is is one that's been. About two decades in the making. Well, let's. I mean, we could go all the way back to childhood if we had a leather couch and asked you to lay on it and just tell us all about your childhood. But we're not going to go there. Your adult story, though, began two decades ago with career change and aspirational changes and relational changes. So, Cindy, can you unpack some of that for us? Let us know who you are and what brought you here today. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, thank you, Dave. Of course, I'm so excited to be here. So glad to be here. I really appreciate you asking me to be on. Yes. So my life has sort of been, you know, it's been a roller coaster. I say that it's been ups and downs. I feel like um, it's, it's been interesting to say the least. And yeah, I mean, I graduated from college with a degree in journalism. So my first sort of real job was that I was a reporter at a small CBS affiliate up in uh, upstate New York. Northern New York actually was so cold. Watertown, New York, if anyone knows where that is, it's like right on the border of Canada and it gets cold and snows a lot. And I'm from Buffalo. And so for me to say that, um, and I loved that. That was always sort of my dream was to be an entertainment reporter. I'd planned on doing that. I was going to start out in Watertown and just kind of move on. And, you know, this is going to sort of tell you how old I am, but I was the military reporter. So Fort Drum is up there, which is one of the largest army posts in the country. They're actually the most deployed division out of the entire army. And so I, when I was there, 9-11 happened. And I, um, you know, I remember 
very vividly as everyone does. And as the military reporter, you know, my job was to go to Fort Drum, spend the day on Fort Drum, talk to the garrison commander, talk to soldiers, see what's happening. Initially, they were, of course, on lockdown, but we knew that they were activated as soon as that second plane hit the tower. And so all day I was doing sort of live shots, you know, interviewing people, doing all the things. And at about five minutes to six, literally before I was live um, in front of hundreds of thousands of people, my sister called me and said, um, Eric is missing. And our friend Eric, who we went, you know, this was right after I had left Rochester. So we had, were very good friends with him in Rochester. He actually dated my, one of my best friends and just spent a lot of time with him. And she was like, they can't find Eric. Eric was a good friend of ours. He had moved to New York in June of 20, 2001. So just a few months before actually to pursue a modeling in, um, gig. And he knew he needed to make money. So he uh, got a job at Cantor Fitzgerald. And as we know, what happened essentially with all the employees with Cantor Fitzgerald, Eric lost his life, unfortunately, on 9-11. And I got that call five minutes before I went live and I started I was upset. I mean, I think the whole day sort of collapsed on me and I started crying and my field director producer was like, get your stuff together. Um, you're live, you know, at six. And he was like yelling at me. And I just remember after doing that live shot, like, I'm not sure reporting is for me anymore if I can't sort of show my emotions. And then I realized it really wasn't when the first troops started to deploy and the first casualties started happening. And my news director asking me to go ask a military spouse how she feels. Well, how do you think she feels? She just lost her husband. Like, so I quit. I couldn't do it anymore. And I got into the marketing world, which is where I've been for over 20 years and now, you know, own my own business. So I, I love marketing. I love PR, but that's kind of how I've gotten professionally where I am, you know, corporate jobs in between and everything. But yeah, I, I want to unpack that, the professional piece real quick, because it is this interesting transition that took place. You were a reporter, which is in essence, marketing the news, right? You're out exactly. there trying to, to find the story, to build the story, to broadcast the story, to try to get people to continue to come back, to buy into the product of the news. Yep. You said it got too hard when you were asked to go tell these heartbreaking stories where on the surface, the world already knows how these people are feeling. And now it's almost like you, you almost feel like you're exploiting somebody to, for somebody else's advantage. Million percent. And then you went into your own business or you went into other businesses of marketing and PR a, a very blunt question is what's the difference what, what's the difference between taking somebody else's story and using it for the greater good of the news and then taking somebody else's story and using it to drive the economy of a business yeah no that's a great question and so you know one of the things that I wear my emotions on my sleeve and that was a very hard thing for me to get through was um those deployments and everything. So the difference, at least for me, is my marketing career. And you're right, you're selling, you're trying to sell something. For me, it was working with two multi-billion dollar developers who did privatized housing for military um, families. And so, you know, the military for decades lived in these concrete boxes, essentially. And they were, you know, the DOD was recognizing that they were losing, their retention was going down the drain, figured out that housing had a big part to do with that. So they brought in all of these private developers to kind of build new housing, rehab the housing that was there, you know, make these community centers. And it actually was a huge, I loved doing that because yeah, obviously I'm making money for this developer. And some people would even say like, oh, you're exploiting 
military members, right? Because that's where your pay is coming from. They um, forfeit their basic allowance for housing, their BAH, to move into this privatized housing. So we take all of their BAH. So yeah, people would be like, oh, now you're just making money off these soldiers, families, and all the things. However, it's very different. And this is the whole thing about marketing is you have to learn to tell people things in sort of a different way, right? So for those naysayers who are like, oh, you're making all these millions of dollars off of military families, yeah. However, we're also re you know increasing retention, readiness, and recruitment. Those were the three reasons why it privatized housing came to fruition. We were giving military families what they were due. So we were, yeah, we were taking, but we were, we were making money off them. However, we were giving them this much better lifestyle. So when soldiers or airmen or Marines or, or sailors deployed, they knew that their families back home were being taken care of, right? From a maintenance point of view, from a community point of view, because they were surrounded by other military members who were going through the same thing as they were. So for me, it was a little bit easier from a marketing point of view to sort of sell that story, to tell that story. And it's still a feel-good story. However, you know, a huge part of my job was crisis communications, a huge part still to this day. And I get hired all the time for crises. I mean, I say that in my 20 years of crisis communications, and I will tell you being a reporter is the, is the reason why I'm so good at crises. And, um, I've covered everything. I've covered murders, suicides, horrible um, fires, deployments, people, you know, soldiers coming home and losing family members, environmental issues, like everything that you can possibly imagine and more I've covered from a crisis point of view. That to me is more like PR toward the more toward, like the, being a reporter. It's interesting, right? And now you're bringing up PR, which I think is a, a big part of this as well. And I think it also transcends a little bit into your personal life. And if, if we can take that shift, yep. and I'm going to try to connect all these dots for, for the people that are listening. So in the professional end, we, you talked about the, the emotional turmoil that you were going through and having to overcome. So you had to look for another way to embrace your passions and your skill set, and say, how can I still do something with the knowledge that I have? That's going to help the greater good, but not necessarily impact me in such a, 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 a central way to your core, right? Where you yep. felt like you were Ex exploiting others. So you transitioned and you found some success there. Mm -hmm. On the personal end, I wonder, I, as I'm hearing your story, I'm thinking about through my own lens, right? There, I think at times we all get into this, this PR role with our own lives where we're, we're so focused on projecting the image we want everybody else to see. We do all the things to make ourselves seem tough and strong and acceptable and whatever the case may be. But And we hide some of these hmm. other aspects that we don't want the world to see, right? I'm wearing my 26.2 shirt right now. I've gone out there and I've I've run marathons at times simply so I could tell people I run marathons. I go for runs around the neighborhood so that people can see me and think, oh, he's tough, he's strong, he's he's in shape and it's the image I wanna project. I pick and choose parts of my story to, to share, mm -hmm. but yet I hide other parts of my story because either I'm embarrassed, I'm, I'm ashamed, or I just don't have the confidence to let other people into that part of my world yet. Yeah. While you're going through these job transitions, is there any part of what I just described in your personal life that started to play out as well? One million percent. I mean, I think that when you look particularly with social media, right? What you see on social media is like everybody, everything is perfect. Everybody's lives, I mean, everybody's healthy and happy and, you know, eating the freshest food and like going on these crazy trips and everything looks picture perfect on social media. And that is something 
personally that I have had to learn to sort of overcome because, you know, um, seven years, let's take it back six years, five or six years ago, my life looked perfect, right? I had the kids, right? I had the house, beautiful house in the suburbs. We had the dog. Me and my husband had this, you know, we were traveling with our children. We had great jobs. We were doing all the things that looked and felt and to, it, to some point, to me, at least was perfect, right? I was very, very happy. We love, but you know, it, it, it was perfect, right? Until it wasn't, right? Until something happens that makes your life go, wow. You know, what everything like in my life has completely changed. And that is probably the biggest thing that I've had to learn to deal with is how do I present myself now as sort of the new Cindy? I'm very different than I was five years ago extremely different. So through social media, which is more professionally for me, but also personally, right? So I've had to complete, and I am, and I do, I'm, I'm such a different person than I was five years ago, completely different. So your professional life took a turn when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers. What happened in your, your personal life, if you don't mind sharing yeah. some of this with us, five, six, seven years ago that led to your world crumbling and having to be rebuilt? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that really happened that um, really started, you know, me changing is when my dad uh, at 66 years old died very suddenly of a heart attack. He, we, you know, my mom had seen him. He went upstairs to watch TV, actually he went to watch the Sunday night football game, which was the Falcons versus New England. I was at that game. So the very last thing he actually said to my mom was, I'm going to go upstairs and see if I can see find Cindy on the TV. My mom went up an hour later and he was gone. My dad was like my person. Um, I grew up in a very, very lower to middle class family. My dad was a janitor. My mom didn't really work that much. Um, when she did, it was like as a secretary part time. And, you know, I but we grew up with not a lot of money, but I didn't know we didn't have a lot of money. If like it always seemed like that we always had everything that we needed. Yeah, we didn't go on vacations. We didn't have nice cars, all the things. But I never knew that because I had the best childhood in the world growing up. And I talk to people now about sort of what my childhood was like and versus what other people's childhoods were like. And I'm very blessed for what I grew up with. And so losing my dad was like losing part of me. I talked to him every single day. He was my biggest cheerleader. I mean, he was just like the person. And so that was 10 years ago, actually, this, this in two weeks, it'll be 10 years exactly that my dad passed away suddenly. That was where I sort of started my transition into realizing that life is very short, right? Almost five, almost, uh, sorry, seven months to the day. My dad died September 29th. On May 27th, my ex-husband, my husband at the time's best friend, my son's godfather, killed himself after his second tour of Afghanistan. He came back from a second tour of Afghanistan. My husband's act, my ex-husband is active duty. Jimmy was my son's godfather and my husband's best friend and was part of the family it was more like a brother to me. And when I got that call, literally like my dad died in September, Jimmy died in May. So whatever that is, seven, eight months, almost to the day, Jimmy died May 27th. It was another thing that just like, sort of, I could, I didn't know how, how I would be able to handle it, to lose these very two important men to me in a very short time, both very unexpectedly. It was like another wake up call for me. Like I was like, what? this, wow, you know, how does this happen? So that really made me realize like how life is very short, very precious. And I think I started to focus more on that, if you will. And so I, 
let's fast forward five years to where, you know, things were changing, kids were growing up, all the things. I used to be a marathon runner, just like you. I uh, actually have run 13 full marathons. I don't even know how many half marathons. I qualified and ran the Boston Marathon. I actually ran the Boston Marathon the year after the bombings, which in and itself is another crazy story for another time. Um, and so, like I said, things on the surface, at least, were, were going really well. And actually inside, too, I felt like I was at a really good place in my life, even without my dad. Um, I had learned to sort of deal with my new normal, if you will, without my dad. And that was a huge adjustment, like I said. But, you know, in July um, of 2018, five years ago, I had run a half marathon and the very, and I, you know, because that's what I would do. You would just be like, yeah, yeah, I'll run. I mean, 13 miles for me was like a training run for me. Um, and I ran the half marathon and the very next day I was in the emergency room thinking I was having a stroke. Mind you, I was, you know, 43 years old, extremely active, running 70 miles a week, eating, I'm vegetarian, eating, you know, good foods, not really drinking, like, of course, socially drinking, but doing all the things that you're supposed to do. And so to be rushed to the emergency room thinking you're having a stroke, it was very, very scary. And so the good news is, I remember the emergency room doctor coming in and saying, the good news is you didn't have a stroke. The bad news is, is we think you have this super rare disease, but we've never really seen it here before. So we're going to send your scans off to another hospital in Atlanta, Emory, which is a wonderful hospital. And we're going to have them look at it. Call, make an appointment with Emory, but we're... 90% sure you don't have this disease. 90%. I'm going to send it off as a, you know, is a, is a, just to make sure, cover all of our bases. So I went on living my life because I was like, okay, the doctor said I don't have this disease. I Googled it and I was like, yeah, I don't have this disease because this disease is horrible. And I've been running marathons and I'm healthy and I have two young kids and I'm all the things. And in October, actually five years and five days exactly after my dad died, I was told I have this super rare disease called fibromuscular dysplasia, which is a horrible, chronic, scary, painful, all the things, rare disease. And that truly was what flipped my life completely upside down a million percent. You talk about this super rare disease, and I've heard you say before it impacts 2% of the population, which... Ironically, two percent of the population still equates to one hundred and forty million people, which is a whole right. When you look at it world, like right. that, right. yeah, but it's it's rare. Like most of us don't know anybody that's experiencing this or that's struggling with this and the the chronic nature of this. When when you found out that you had this disease, did it put you right back in that place that you were when you found out that your dad passed away or your your, your kids got father, where mortality seemed so real, and you you snapped into I had to live for right now, as opposed to I have to plan everything out. Yeah. So you would think that I would take sort of, you know, the live for right now approach based on what I had gone through. However, it was such a, it was such a big shock to me and shock to my system um, that I, I didn't, I mean, I take that back for the beginning of time, for the first, maybe five months I did, I said, okay, I'm going to continue working out. Cause I was told, Hey, you can work out. You just have to like, definitely cannot run marathons. No way. Like definitely cannot even run a half marathon because my disease affects the um, artery system, right? So all of my arteries are extremely weak and four parts of my, my carotid, renal, iliac, and vertebral arteries are actually misshaped. 
So they look kind of like a bead of pearl. So they go thin and thick, which makes me at very high risk for dissections, for strokes, for heart attacks, and for brain aneurysms, which I actually have two brain aneurysms. And so in October, when I was diagnosed, it was like, I took maybe three days and mourned it. But my husband, my ex-husband now at the time, was deploying for a year within some, I got diagnosed in October. We knew he would leave sometime the f- January two. 2014 at the beginning of the year, we didn't know when. So while I was focused on my own sort of disease, I was more focused on dealing with the fact that my husband was going overseas for a year to who knows what's going to happen to him, especially with what took place with Jimmy. My husband is is a pilot. You You hear about Blackhawks down all the time. So for me, those first few months were really more focused on, yeah, I have this disease. I'm stable right now. I'm going to just um, trek on and worry about my husband who is deployed or deploying about to deploy. And that was where my focus was. However, that all completely changed almost immediately after he left. He left in March of 2014. And about maybe six weeks later is when they told me that my CTA had, I had these two brain aneurysms. So after that, I was like, that was like the real dose of reality. And and he was gone. My best friend at the time, my support system, my everything was gone as I'm being told I have two brain aneurysms, albeit they're small, thank God. However, you hear you have two brain aneurysms. What are you going to think? Like, I'm, I'm dead. I'm gone. I'm, this is it. I'm gone. And that was really when things in my life started to kind of collapse, fully collapse, was when I was told I had the two brain aneurysms everything, it was like a domino effect of all the things that happened right after. And I did it all by myself without a, my, while my husband was deployed, which made it even worse for me. Yeah. So, so many external things are impacting you. Yep. So many things that you seemingly don't have control over. And now the one thing that you do have control over your own life feel, and it, it feels like nothing is, is gaining traction there either. And it's mis, misstep after misstep or wrong move after wrong move or whatever the case may be. And you say your world started to collapse around you. Um, by by your world, you're talking relationships, friendships, jobs. What what is your world that's collapsing? Uh, everything that you mentioned and more. So when I was diagnosed in October of 2013, I had a ton of people that were like support right here in Atlanta. They were like, "We're going to be there for you, all the things." I threw my husband a going away deployment party. In January of 2014, we had 350 people at it, 350. So I, and they were all like, we're going to do this meal train for you. We're going to do blah, blah, all the things, all the things. And so I, when Kevin left, I felt like I had this big support system. I really did. And slowly but surely people started leaving, walking out of my life, ghosting me, if you will. And I have no idea why they just stopped calling. They just stopped texting, never told me why just left. And we're talking friendships that I had had since middle school, 30 plus years, gone without telling me why. And, you know, I remember I was actually doing another interview and in, in the um, interview, he asked me, like, if you could say something to these people who just left. And we're talking 350 people that were at the deployment party. I've got, you know, a handful, maybe. What would you say to them? And I said, I would just ask them why. Like, why did you ghost me? Like when I needed you at the biggest, most harshest time in my life, what happened? come to find out that this happens to about 90% of people who have chronic illnesses, people walk out on them. And that was what was going on with me. So I got told I have two brain aneurysms. Almost immediately, I felt like people were ghosting me. I had no friends. I had nobody. And 
Then I was told that my disease had spread to my iliacs because I was having horrible leg pain, couldn't run. So that was, was my therapy, you know, as a runner, which was everything to me, my physical, my mental, everything to have that cut out of my life was almost harder than losing friends. And it's very hard for people to understand that unless you're a runner, unless you run marathons, unless you're, I mean, I had these huge plans to like run all of the world major, major marathons. I had run the three in the United States. I was going to run the other three overseas. And so to be told that I could no longer put my running shoes on and run was what, it's not that I no longer could, it's that I'm physically, my body wouldn't let me because of my legs. Physically, they wouldn't let me. And so then the chronic pains, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's not even necessarily the physical piece. A lot of it would be the emotional piece where it's your dreams, it's your goals, it's your aspirations have just been taken away. You running probably became your new best friend. It was the place where you could go have conversations with yourself, right? Where you could feel the pain, you could feel the frustration, but you could talk yourself out of it. For some people, it's the equivalent of sitting down and just watching Netflix at night. Imagine Mm -hmm. if you no longer could watch TV, if Netflix was gone from your scrolling your social media feed, wherever it is that you go to get into your own head and to to plan, to dream, to distract yourself, that got stripped away from you at the same time that your physical relationships had been stripped away. So now you're just completely isolated in your own little bubble. I mean, when my dad died, the next where I found out at 1130 at night, like I said, I was at the, at the Falcons game the very next morning when I got home to Buffalo. The first thing I did was run 14 miles. Right. That was my very first thought was I need to go clear my head like I have to go run. That was gone. I didn't have that. I didn't have that support that you said. And so that so my husband's gone. I'm told I have two brain aneurysms. Friends are leaving. Now I can't run. And oh, by the way. I lose my corporate job that I had had for seven years, right? So I came back from short-term disability. I actually had to have in between all this major abdominal surgery that was unexpected. So I had to take some short-term disability from that on top of still dealing with my FMD. And I I left um, for disability. I came back on a Monday. That Wednesday, I lost my job. A job that I was very high up with, I had worked my entire life to get where I was, right? I was a vice president. I was making great money and I loved what I was doing. I started nonprofits there. I loved what I was doing. And that was my identity, right? It was, it was completely now stripped away. Who was I if I wasn't the runner, the marathoner, Cindy, the runner? Who was I if I wasn't social Cindy out planning the parties, doing all the things? That's gone. Now, who was I? I don't even have a profile. My profession, I'm gone. I have absolutely nothing. After that, my entire identity, I felt like that's it. I have, n- I have nothing. And oh, by the way, my husband is deployed overseas while all of this is happening. The it's identity horrible. the identity piece is, is real, right? We talked early on before we hit record about names and last names and first names. Like, what, what do we, what do we go by? What do we call each other? And I, I, I know that there are some listeners here that are resonating with this, whether it's a, a a mom who, when her kids leave the house, she wonders, who am I now? I've been a mom for so long. Or somebody that just went through a divorce where they've been a, a wife or a husband or they had a last name for so long. Maybe it's somebody that is now pursuing that next phase of their career and they're moving from a Mr. or a Mrs. to a doctor. And is that their new identity? You know, we throw these labels on ourselves based off of our achievements and the things that we've been able to accomplish. And we want that name or that label to resonate with other people so that they can be proud of us for that label. And when those things get pulled away, especially when it's 
by our perception of not even our doing. Somebody else has taken that away from us. It's hard because now you've got to go and figure out what the next label is going to be. What's the next identity? So all of this is happening to you. Your identities are being stripped away. The labels, the things that people associate you with are being pulled away from you piece by piece by piece. But you still have some core of who you are or you're having to re-identify and find who you are. You know, I, I've heard you make the, the statement before that a dime is more valuable than 10 pennies, right? Yep, that's and my you, statement. Yep. And, you, and you talk about that through the lens of friends and relationships, but I would almost argue you could do this with identities as well, right? Mm -hmm. You had so many identities that were were small and somewhat fleeting and individually or somewhat insignificant. But when you can double down and say, what, what's at the core and what happens when you put it all together? What happens when you find that one thing? Things can really grow and maximize. So rewind now four or five years ago, everything is starting to fall apart. How did you find your core? How did you find the the new Cindy or the original Cindy that was hidden behind all these other pennies? What happened there? Yeah, I'll be honest. It, it I went to probably, I thought I couldn't go to a darker place than when my dad died. I did. I went to a much, much darker place because I felt in my mind like I had nothing anymore, right? I didn't have a job. I didn't have running. I didn't have friends. My husband's overseas. What did I have? I literally felt like I had nothing. So I started, I became best friends with Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc. And I would wake up in the morning with, a, you know, not technically, but, you know, I would drink all day oh, because what else did I have to do? I'm by myself. I became almost like a functioning alcoholic in some way. My kids were still going to school. They were dressed. We were doing all they had no idea. But what they didn't know was I was staying up every single night until three or four o'clock in the morning, drinking myself to oblivion crying and just being so depressed. I, I didn't know what to do with myself. And there were many, not many, there were a few nights where I sat in my garage with that door down, ready to turn the car on, ready to end it all. And that's the honest, that is the truth because I felt like I couldn't go on any further. Who was I? If I wasn't saying, who was I, what did I have? And it truly was by either the grace of God or some, my dad in my head, someone saying like, you have two babies. Cause my kids were nine and 12 at the time. You cannot leave those two babies. You cannot. And that was what they really are. What if I didn't have Lillian Logan, I'm not sure I would be talking to you right now. And that's the honest God truth. And so I, I had one, like you said, I did have, I, oh, my phrase, it's better to have one dime than 10 pennies because I had that one dime who also stood by me through the whole thing. And she pulled me out of my dark place, like physically got in. That's what I say. And lifted me up and showed that she loved me and supported me. And would show up at three o'clock in the morning because she'd know I'd be up, you know, like just random. Okay, we're going to get your kids to school. Let's go. Let's do all the things. And it was because of her and because of my kids that I really started to realize, okay, I've got to stop this. And then as soon as the literally the day my husband, two days after he came back, I was in the hospital for his welcome home ceremony with my disease. I couldn't go to that. Two days after that, I was in the hospital with sepsis, almost dying. And I, it was because of the sepsis immediately I had sepsis as COVID was starting, right? Like I was in the hospital for sepsis, but everybody else there was for COVID. And it was those 10 days that I was in the hospital realizing people around me, you know, all the things that I still, I am, you know, at the time I was 44 years old, 43 years old, whatever. I still have a lot of life to live and it's time for me to stop what I'm doing, turn it around and figure out how to make what I have work, how to make the new Cindy work, 
And that's what I did. And I, I literally started journaling. I started like, you know, uh, manifesting, meditating, all the things. And I was an unhealthy, a sick sort of diseased person. Now I consider myself like I'm a healthy person who has a disease, right? Because back then I was killing myself. Now I don't even, you know, I don't drink at all. I'm, I'm, I'm doing like different things to make sure I'm mentally there. And I tell, I have to, you know, I tell people that if I didn't get to that place, it's, it's taken a lot of time. Like it's, it was only a year ago. I told my story for the first time to get where I am, but I'm in such a better place right now. Like I own my own business, you know, I'm and to your point, my husband of 17 years on Christmas day that just went by wrote me in a card, in a Christmas card that he wants a divorce. That's how he told me he wanted a divorce. My husband of 17 years, military husband. I left, I stayed with him through his deployment, did all the things. So now you're adding another layer to this of, you know, if you will, like what all the things that FMD took away from me, because he told me I'm not empathetic enough to be your spouse anymore. I don't have the empathy that you need. Those are his exact words. So clearly it was FMD that took my husband away, my disease. If I, he had divorced me three years ago, I'm not sure I would have been able to handle it. Now I'm learning to embrace the fact that I'm now single. I'm a single mom and I'm kind of kicking butt at it. And so like that wouldn't have happened three years ago. And now you're at the place where you are rebranding yourself, right? You're, you're finding your new identity and sharing it with the world saying, yeah. this is me. This is what I stand for. And this is what I can do. Look yep. at what I look at who I was. Look at who I am now mm -hmm. and know the new me, which Absolutely. now that your personal life is bleeding over into that professional life. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I love that taking who you are as a person and saying, yeah, it happened. Let's yeah. go. Let's figure out how I can use this now to my advantage and your advantage. Yep. And so strategic branding is really like what you're all about in all aspects of your life now. Right. Yeah, exactly. I felt like after I got sick, after I got sick, after I got home from the hospital with sepsis, one of the first, not one of the first things I did, but very soon after that, I planned a trip to Africa, a three week trip to Africa with my girlfriend, the one girlfriend who stood by me and Spending those three weeks in Africa also changed me dramatically. And since then, I have been to Israel and Jordan and other places around the world. Israel also had a huge impact on me that helped me get to where I am today. So who have I rebranded myself as? Yeah, like now I'm an award-winning businesswoman, right? I'm a world traveler, which I couldn't be before. I travel, you know, like I said, I mean, I just bought a ticket last week to Rome, spur of the moment, because it was on sale. So I'm like, sure. Let's do it, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I didn't have a successful business. And so, you know, I am now a single mom, right? I'm a world traveler. I'm a very good friend. Like if you're in my circle now, which is very, very small, like you're like part of my family, right? Realistically, you're part of my family. And, you know, I'm a business owner. And also I'm, an, I'm, a, pr I'm a pretty big philanthropist as well, if I do say so. I give back a ton. I've started three nonprofits. And so that's who I am. That's what I do. And I'm super proud of, yeah, 48 years old. Did I think I'd be rebranding myself? Absolutely not. Like not even, I thought by now, like I'd be looking down the road to retirement and like, you know, checking those boxes. Now I literally appreciate and, and I love every day, even those horrible hard days, even those days where I can't get out of bed because I'm in so much pain and my kids, you know, have to make their own dinners or whatever. And I don't feel like I'm being a good mom. I get over that quickly. Mm. I take the time to mourn the old Cindy still, of course. Who was that Cindy? She was 47 years of the old Cindy. I still have times where I mourn her, but 
as long as the good times, you know, o- overshadow the bad times, then something's going right. You're doing okay. There you go. You were a victim for a long time, and now you're just a badass out there killing it. And that's okay. that's yes. so good to see. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you. So, so where do you go from here? Yeah. So, you know, like you said, sort of transition, the bringing the pro- personal over into the pro- professional life, which is what I'm doing right now. I am doing podcasts about speaking. I've actually um, am, have written a book and I'm actually writing a much bigger book about the experiences that I've had. And with the thought that I will be able to help people who have experienced hardships like I have, it doesn't have to be a chronic disease, although it can be, right? There, we're called, people who have chronic diseases, we call each other spoonies. I don't know if you know that because you lose a number of spoons throughout the day. So I have also become pr- very active in this spoony world. Um, I'm on social media quite a bit with that. I've met met um, a lot of people who have my disease, who I've helped come down from off that ledge, who didn't know who felt like I was. They're calling me now out of the blue, talking to me. And so that is where I am now. I'm I'm telling my story. I'm hoping that people learn something from it, but I'm still, you know, doing this you know, I just got a huge, awesome client for my, my consulting agency. So I'm still definitely working on the professional side as well. That's not so much like, you know, talking about my health. They're sort of two separate things. However, they do cross over because a big part that I've started doing is helping other Spoonies who were in, who maybe want to start their own business, who maybe don't know where to go because it's hard for them to get back in the corporate world after being diagnosed with this disease. So that is something that I've started to take on as well, sort of coaching and helping others who feel like, where do we go from here? That's awesome. So most of your clients right now on the professional side, businesses, corporations, looking for 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 help with PR, branding, things of that nature. And on the personal side, it's helping the individuals recognize who they are and what they can still do and how they can overcome it and becoming that dime to so many people that feel like they lost all their pennies. Exactly. Right? Oh, it's so Perfectly, good. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Said. Yeah. But, so let, let me ask you this now, because one of the things I, I like to do with this podcast is I, I like to, to have people leave with something. So people are going to resonate with you. They're going to remember, Oh, this is Cindy who had this amazing story of overcoming. And now she's out there just killing it in the world. But if they're they're looking to to replicate some of that, you know, we don't want them to replicate the hard times, but we want them to replicate the lessons that have been learned. I'm going to ask you to just imagine right now that you've got millions of people listening to this. They're, they're hanging on to your every word. They're either driving to work or school. They're laying in bed. They're sitting out back. They're in the pool. They're at the beach. Who knows where they are listening to your words right now? And they're feeling inspired. Mm-hmm. But they also know that podcasts don't last forever, that eventually this episode's going to end. And you're going to walk off the stage of their life before you were to walk off the stage when you've got them on the edge of their seat and they're so captivated by you right before you drop that mic and walk off. What do you want them to to remember? What lesson do you want them to pick up from from all of this that you had to go through? There's actually a couple. The One of them is, you know, all, all you need really is one person. Right. So if you have one person on your side, you can get through anything. And that one person can be you know, a co- it doesn't have to be a family member. It can be a colleague that you work with. It can be a workout buddy. It can be someone online, right? Like you said, like that support system. This is how I know all the other FMDers is because of the support. You do need one dime. Um, and then the other thing I like to tell people though, is that give yourself like some grace, right? Like, like I said before, I still mourn the old Cindy because that was part of, still part of who I am. As long as it doesn't like take over your whole life. Yeah, it's okay. Like you said, I sit 
many a nights in my bed and watch trash TV on Netflix and eat chocolate or ice cream, you know, knowing that tomorrow it's going to be okay. I'm going to wake up, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to journal and things are going to be okay for me. And so I think that that's, you know, find your one person, find your dime, right? Give yourself some grace, right? And the other important thing I would say is like, if you can journal or meditate, like that's helped me tremendously. So um, those would be the things, the main things that I would say to people, I think that have been the biggest reason that I have become the person who I am. And so good. So good. And so if people are looking to have you become a dime in their life, if they're a business looking for some help with marketing or branding, I, I know you've got your website, which is listed in the show notes here at cindygersh.com. I'll have it all spelled out so they can just click on the, the link. But some of us are just lazy and like for people to say it out loud because scrolling to the bottom of an episode and mm -hmm. clicking the link, I mean, it takes so much effort and energy. I know. Yeah, believe <sighs> me. <laughs> <laughs> how, how else can people get in touch with you or is that the best way that for them, um, for them to find you? I'm actually really active on social media. Um, so in all of my names are the same, which is 716 girl in ATL 716 Buffalo. I'm now living in Atlanta. It makes sense. So you can find me on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, all the things um, I'm pretty active on because I feel like as a per, this is where I meet a lot of my dimes, if you will, is other people throughout the world that I never would have met if it weren't for social media. That's awesome. Well, in the sports world, they, they talk about amazing athletes that can throw a dime and you threw some dimes today. So I appreciate you. Um, I've got you in my contact list now. So I'm guessing that means we're friends and family and dimes of or whatever All now. So feel, feel free to, to hit me up if I can ever help you with anything. And I'm going to make sure that I do the same. You Absolutely. are an inspiration. I appreciate you giving up so much of your valuable time just to, to help inspire me. Your story resonates with me in some very, very real ways. And I know it does with some of the listeners. So listeners, if you, if you were inspired by this, share this. Uh, go out there and give it the thumbs up and the stars and all the things. Make sure other people can can find this episode because you never know the impact it's going to make. And then be a dime to somebody today and share this story. Thank you. Did you enjoy this episode? I hope so. If you did, feel free to keep listening by subscribing right now to the Lasting Learning Podcast and get new episodes as soon as they're released. Interested in knowing more about me, Dave Schmidow? Well, feel free to find out what makes me tick by reading one of my books, Bold Humility or It's Like Riding a Bike. Feel free to check them both out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or directly on my website, schmidow.net. That's S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-U dot net.